that Jesus tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place. That's our very high intention that as we engage with Dr. Taylor's work here, this place will become a thin place. Welcome to a Thin Place podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. Where is your God? The question that we're asking today is that, where is your God? In the social dynamics of our day, someone might hear that as some sort of threat. Defenses are easily aroused these days. Where's your God? Show me. You can just hear the conflict. The religious tradition of my youth set me into sort of a defensive posture toward this question. The verse from the Apostle Peter's first letter found in the Christian scriptures was burned into our consciousness. Always be ready to make your defense, to give an answer to anyone who demands from you a reason for the hope that is in you. So we memorized verses of scripture so they would come quickly to mind when needed. We were taught to anticipate certain questions that might be asked so that we could recite systematic gotcha answers to those attacks from the godless secular world. For some who were probably of much the same temperament as Peter that we mentioned above, these encounters were welcomed. In fact, these were the people who would be asking these questions in all sorts of inopportune times. These are the people one avoids sitting by or making eye contact with on an airplane. For others, such an encounter was the last thing that they would be looking for. They might contort themselves on occasion out of guilt to confront somebody with the question, but usually they avoided the subject entirely when out in public. It wasn't because their faith was less in any way than the gung-ho person we just talked about. These encounters didn't, well, they didn't feel right. They seemed awkward and intrusive, sort of like a vacuum cleaner salesman showing up at the door at dinner time. Where is your God? Such a question these days might be heard as a threat, a challenge to be faced or attacked or defended against. What if it was a question to be contemplated? What if, rather than a defensive posture or one placing us in attack mode, postures that seek to win an encounter, what if this question led us to contemplation, to meditation? How would we answer that question? Where is your God? Now, parentheses before we start Dr. Taylor's talk, these messages were originally recorded on cassette tapes. On some of these, the entire worship service was recorded, which required both sides of the cassette. At the end of side one, the person in the booth would have to stop the tape, turn it over quickly, and begin recording again. 
and this was one of those services. There'll be a short skip in the middle of the sermon. Just letting you know. So, Where is Your God? by Dr. Larry Taylor. Now this morning I want to read from two passages in the Psalms. First, I would like to echo some verses already read by Ruth O'Quinn in Psalm 139. And then I'd like to read the opening verses of the 42nd Psalm. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there thy hand shall lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. As a heart longs for flowing streams, so longs my soul for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for thee, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me continually, Where is your God? To the question, where is your God, the ancient pagan could give a quick and precise answer. His God was on a shelf over in the corner of his house amidst the paraphernalia of worship. Or his God was down at the local temple where gods dwell. The Hebrews and later on the Christians were at considerable disadvantage with the question, where is your God? The road which began with the second commandment, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, finally ended in Jesus' breathtaking statement that God is spirit. The early Christians were even accused of atheism because no one had ever seen their God. The challenge to Christians today to locate their God is still pointed Modern skepticism asks its question to people of faith. Since God cannot be photographed, since he cannot be touched or measured or weighed, since God cannot be empirically verified, we're still being asked today, where exactly is your God? We all know people who seem to have a marvelous sense of the presence of God. Maybe you count yourself among them. But there are other people who say that God is far from obvious to them. They've never heard him speak. They experience an emptiness and a void where other people say they experience God. And they ask where God is when millions perish in the Holocaust and thousands perish in an earthquake halfway around the world and tens of thousands die of starvation every day. Faith comes harder for such people as these. And they want to ask us a question that we can't ignore. Where exactly is our God? Somebody has said that theology is largely a matter of prepositions. 
prepositions have to do with the relation of objects in space, in back of, above, within, around. We live in a physical chemical dimension that's characterized by space and time. But the Bible teaches us that God is in another dimension and that God is not limited by anything in space or time which he has created. Now, of course, the only way we can speak about God is with the language of space and time, and hence our prepositions become very important as we talk about God. The question, where is your God, is one that can only be answered with the human language of space, and that means prepositions. But the prepositions we use are very important because they tell some significant things about our attitude and about our faith. We reveal a great deal about our faith in the way we position God. There have been several answers given through the centuries to the question, where is your God? Each answer has something positive and something negative. The first answer to the question, where is your God, comes from the traditionalist who says, God is back there. God is back there in the Bible. He's back there at the Red Sea. He's back there at the cross of Calvary. God is back there in my past when I was converted. He's back there in my home church where people were really spiritual. But God is always back there for the traditionalist. When the Israelites faced difficult times in the wilderness and when they became disgruntled about Moses' leadership, they always wanted to go back there to Egypt where everything was infinitely better. Some Christians identify God as back there at the moment of their conversion. I remember one old gentleman in a former church who loved to testify about the beautiful presence of God at the time he was converted. And as you listened to him, you got the impression that God had never again been as real to him as he was at that moment. For him, God was back there. The Old Testament example of Lot's wife who looked back should forever make us cautious about locating God back there. The traditionalist fails to see that none of us can really go back there we cannot go back in time or place or worldview and find God in the same way again. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, A person's mind stretched by a new idea can never go back to its original dimensions. We can't go back to a smaller view of God and the world. Our best bet is to conceive a bigger God to match our larger experience of life and faith. Years ago, Sam Foss wrote a poem about that. He wrote about a boy who was born mid little things between a little world and sky and dreamed not of the cosmic rings round which the circling planets fly. He lived in little works and thoughts where little ventures grow and plod and paced and plowed his little plots and prayed unto his little God. But as the mighty system grew, his faith grew faint with many scars. The cosmos widened in his view, but God was lost among his stars. A 
Another boy in lowly days, as he to little things was born, but gathered lore in woodland ways, and from the glory of the morn, as wider skies broke on his view, God greatened in his growing mind. Each year he dreamed his God anew and left his older God behind. He saw the boundless scheme dilate in star and blossom, sky and clod, and as the universe grew great, he dreamed for it a greater God. Sometimes people complain that they can no longer find God in the old ways and the old places. Maybe that's because God wants us to look for him in new ways and new places. Where is your God? The traditionalist answers, he's back there. But in our fast-moving modern age, we have to find a better answer than that. There is, however, one strong positive thing to say about the traditionalist answer that God is back there. We believe that Jesus is the norm and the definition of what human life is to be. We believe that God revealed himself definitively in this one man, Jesus Christ. And we believe that the canonized testimonies of faith in Scripture are the standard against which we can measure our own experience of God. God had a great past. And there's something very important in the phrase, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Where is your God? We reveal so much about our faith in the way we position our God. Another answer sometimes given to the question, where is your God, is the answer of the literalist who says, God is up there. It's neat, it's simple, it's absolute. And once again, the prepositions are revealing. Modern times haven't been very favorable to the literalist. In earlier generations, we could confidently answer that God and heaven are up there and hell is down there. But our new awareness of space makes that kind of language dubious. Space seems to be curved. The three-storied universe is no longer part of our world picture. Now, of course, there's still the London Flat Earth Society which keeps on insisting that the earth isn't round at all. The London Flat Earth Society, unfortunately, has its counterparts in the church. Sometimes people cease to think about their faith. We discovered this past week that Paul accused the Galatians of being unthinking and gullible. And some folks have their minds so made up that no amount of evidence will ever persuade them otherwise. One evening after delivering a lecture on the solar system, philosopher-psychologist William James was approached by a woman who claimed that she had a superior theory to the one described by him. She said, we don't live on a ball rotating around the sun. We live on a crust of earth on the back of a giant turtle. Well, not wishing to demolish 
this absurd argument with all the massive scientific evidence at his command, James decided to dissuade his opponent gently. If your theory is correct, madam, he said, what does the turtle stand on? Ah, you're a very clever man, Mr. James, she replied, and that's a good question, but I can answer it. The first turtle stands on the back of a second far larger turtle. But what does the second turtle stand on? James asked politely. And the woman crowed triumphantly, It's no use, Mr. James. It's turtles all the way down. That isn't much worse than the first Soviet cosmonaut who blasted into space came back to earth to report that he took a good look up there and didn't see God anywhere. He was being as literal-minded as the Christian who takes all the imagery of the Bible literally. Slowly we're coming to see that all language is symbolic, that religious language is highly symbolic, and that the language of the Bible is intensely symbolic. It is what someone has called the glad hyperbole of the heart is a language of extravagance. The language of Scripture is metaphor written by people who thought like poets rather than engineers. But there's something very important and positive in the statement that God is up there. It's the only way we have to say that God is different from us that he's in another dimension, that he is above us and beyond us, that he is transcendent and holy. And today we need a good dose of the holy, transcendent God of Isaiah who wrote, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. In that sense, God is up there. Where is your God? You reveal a great deal about your faith in the way you position God. Another answer that's sometimes given to the question, where is your God, is the answer of the pietist who says, God is in here. He answers the question, you ask me how I know he lives, by saying, he lives within my heart. The pietist is characterized by a warm, mystical, devotional approach to the Christian life. It sustains him in his daily need, and let me say, we everyone need that dimension in our faith. We need the warm, intimate assurance that God is in here. Sometimes the answer of the pietist and the answer of the literalist team up together. In my talks with young children through the years who have begun to ask questions about becoming Christians and church members, I sometimes have found that they know the right language to use, but not always the meanings. They know that Jesus comes into their heart, but one of them asked me how Jesus could ever get into his chest. The answer of the pietist that God is in here, taken by itself, is too subjective. It needs to be balanced and corrected by some other useful prepositions. 
Certainly, we have to experience God in our hearts. But our experience is not the only norm for faith. We have to submit our experience of God to the greater experience of Scripture and the history of the church and the general knowledge of life found in the arts and the sciences. But once again, there is something very positive in the answer that God is in here. First and foremost, we meet God in here. And if we don't meet God in here in an attitude of trust and faith, all the evidence of God elsewhere will not convince us. The beauty of nature, the joy of friendship, the love of family, the testimony of Scripture all speak to us only when we have first been encountered by God in here. Have you had an experience like that? Have you encountered God in your heart? Until you do, you're not likely to meet God anywhere else. Where is your God? There's still another answer to the question, where is your God? And it's the answer of the futurist. The futurist says God is out there. And once more, it's not merely the spatial significance of the preposition that's so revealing, but the attitude behind it. God is out there, in front of us, ahead of us, calling us to come out and meet him. The futurist has captured the moving sweep of the entire Bible which always points ahead. The posture of the entire Bible is one of leaning into the future expectantly. You and I are pilgrims. We've seen the city in the distance, and yet we have to camp in the desert one more night. We are the people of hope, and we love to sing in one of our hymns, we're possessed of a hope that is steadfast and sure. Sometimes this hope we have becomes too otherworldly, as though only heaven out there really matters. And when that happens, we're accused of having faith that is pie in the sky by and by. We've all known people who are so heavenly-minded they're little earthly good. Faith has to do with more than just streets of gold and gates of pearl. It's not merely our destination out there that is important, but it is also the journey that we're on down here right now. In that beautiful American parable, The Wizard of Oz, we meet some fascinating characters. There's Dorothy from Kansas who is lost and who only wants to go home. She sets out on the yellow brick road on a journey that will lead her to the Emerald City and a meeting with the great wizard of Oz. Along the way, she meets a scarecrow who needs a brain in order to think and a tin man who needs a heart so that he can feel again and a lion who can't even scare anyone because he has no courage. And as we walk happily along the yellow brick road with Dorothy and her friends, we start to see ourselves in each one of these characters. 
we begin to realize that we're all lost, that the journey of faith requires brains and warm, compassionate hearts and outstanding courage. And finally, Dorothy and her friends come to the Emerald City where they meet the wizard only to realize that the very things they wanted to ask for have already been given to them in some measure as they walked along the road, as they related to each other, as they faced the crises of the journey, they found in part what they needed. The point, you see, was the journey, not merely the destination out there. When we say that God is out there, we're saying that while we may speak of God behind us, God around us, God within us, and God above us, we absolutely must speak of God ahead of us. God is the lure of tomorrow. He has already explored our future. And he calls back to us to say, come on out and meet me. There's nothing here that you need to fear. Where is your God? Is your God back there, locked into a past that is no more? except in memory? Is your God up there, a non-functional God left behind in today's complex world by the literalism in which you've encased God? Is your God in here a warm, intimate, secure reality, but not one that thrusts you out into the world to serve your fellow man? Is your God out there, pie in the sky, by and by, little more at the moment than a dim hope. All of us tell so much about our faith in the way we position God. Centuries ago, there was this psalmist who wrote the psalm that Ruth read so beautifully earlier. This psalmist had found God to be his total environment. He knew the meaning of Wordsworth's phrase, God who is our home. And he spoke of a presence, a presence that so permeates our lives that there is never even a moment when we are left alone. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? Thou dost beset me behind and before. Where is your God? My God is back there in a past that casts its light on my present pathway through the event of Jesus as recorded in the Scriptures. My God is up there, the transcendent one, high and holy and lifted up far above me. My God is in here, the ground of being who brings assurance to life, my God is out there, ahead of me in the future, beckoning me to unimaginable experiences which he has prepared for those who love him. That's where my God is. Where is your God? Shall we pray?
Dearest Lord, we give you thanks for the presence that is within us and around us, above us and below us, behind us and before us, in which presence we live out our days never alone. We give you thanks for the God who speaks continuously in our ear, reminding us of how much we've been loved and reminding us of how costly grace is. And we thank you for the God who even before we knew where you are had already lovingly, delightfully found us. Sometimes our plans are too ambitious. When we set out to find God, believing that we can define the journey and the search and that you will be where we expect. We pray, rather, that within each day it will be enough to be found by you and to learn where you are closer than hands or feet. Thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Devotional writer Ken Geyer asked in one of his books, when looking out a window, do you look at the quality of the glass, at the working of the latch and the frames, or do you look through it beyond all of that stuff to the expanse and the beauty of the world beyond. It seems these days we're all too often guilty of looking at the glass and at the frame of our very small, constricted, and quite cloudy windows of our personal perspectives and prejudices. With all of the technological advances that in theory bring us the entire marvelous and beautiful world, right to the palm of our hands. We often choose to stay imprisoned in our very small conceptions of what the world is like and what God is like. And sometimes we defend those conceptions of, as if our very lives depend on it. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis reads like this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So, the question posed for our consideration to meditate on this week. Where is your God? What are your prepositions as they relate to God? The God we are attempting to speak of here requires all of them. 
Open those windows. Use all the senses at your disposal. Back there, up there, in there, and out there. Where is your God? I hope you've enjoyed this edition of A Thin Place Podcast. As always, if you have any suggestions or comments, ideas, please send them to thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. It's also available to stream on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon. Please rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. It's important. It helps share it with other folks. Share it on your social media platforms. All of us who love Larry would love for more people to discover the treasures of these sermons. As always, special thanks again to Larry and Linda Taylor for allowing us to rediscover these sermons in this way on A Thin Place with Dr. Larry Taylor. And until next time, grace and peace.